All right, today we are welcoming Michael Searider from the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation. And Michael, I would love it if you could tell our listeners about your background, a little more about your position, how the New York Alliance supports the intellectual and developmental disabilities community, and really what that is, what is that alliance, and what is the vision for it? Sure, happy to do so. Um, So I come to all of this work um, from the position of a family member of a person with a developmental disability. My brother Chris lives in Syracuse and receives services from another ARC chapter, actually. And um, so I've been kind of an advocate for people with disabilities since I was two when Christopher was born. And I never really realized that, actually, Mm -hmm. quite frankly, until I became a professional after Mm -hmm. college and uh, went to work for the state legislature. And uh, in that role, I had the opportunity to work for the chair of the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Committee in the State Assembly. Um, I've also worked for a, a mental health advocacy organization, the Mental Health Association of New York State, then to the Office of Mental Health, excuse me, to the uh, Governor's Office, where I had um, responsibility and oversight for the uh, what was then OMRDD, now is OPWDD, and OMH and a few other state agencies. Also worked in a state agency at the Office of Mental Health. And, um, and then to NYSRA, the New York State Rehabilitation Association, as the president and CEO back about 10 years ago. And in that capacity, you know, I really began, um, be- began focusing once again on the developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, um, as, a, as a major component of the work here. And where, you know, that's, that's a bit of the history here, actually, of New York Alliance. Um, we, we merged the New York State Rehabilitation Association and the New York State Association of Community Residential Agencies, NYSACRA. Those merged into the New York Alliance in 2018. And that's kind of how we find ourselves here at the New York Alliance. Um, the New York Alliance now is about 135 provider organizations large across the state of New York, making it the largest statewide association representing service providers to um, uh, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And we really break our work down into what I call kind of three, three main bucket areas, if you will. Uh, policy and advocacy work. Um, I have been spending much of last night and much of this morning mm-hmm. trying to track down and chase down this elusive cost of living adjustment that we are um, pursuing in this state budget this year. So we're regular communicators with the governor, with the legislature, and with OPWDD. The second bucket of of activity is what I would call education. We do a lot of um, uh, events. We have four in-person events, including an annual conference that just concluded last week. Um, But we also do regular webinars and regular webinar series on a variety of things that people people want to know more about in the field of supporting people with uh, developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities. And then the third category, which is probably what makes us, what what kind of differentiates the New York Alliance from many of the other provider associations is that we have a number of grants that really fund an awful lot of the work that, uh, that, that puts us out on the on the, on the leading edge, sometimes even the bleeding edge, of how are we going to next better, best support individuals with developmental disabilities to live the lives that they want to. We have been uh, very you know, huge supporters and you know, major, major advocates in moving the direct support professional um, credentialing forward, um, professional investments in the direct support workforce, um, thinking about how to support people as they pursue housing and bring resources to that, person-centeredness, supported decision-making, I can go on and on, but the point is that those are, are grants that we operate and, and bring that technical assistance to the entire field of people, uh, of service providers to um, uh, people with IDD, not just the New York Alliance members. 
and it tends to flavor our policy and advocacy work very significantly. That's why we've been such strong advocates on behalf of the workforce, on the housing issues, on all of those things. And and I'm really glad to see, actually, that so many of those things that we've been fighting for for 10 and 15 years has kind of become in vogue now. They're mm-hmm. Much of the conversation mm-hmm. that we have with OPWDD about you know the ARPA investments that they've made in mm-hmm. the direct support workforce and many of the other things that are now going on. So, um, but that's a bit about uh, who we are and what who I am, I guess, and how I come to this work. Well, I think you answered about um, five out of five of our questions. <laughs> Answer. <laughs> oh, there's more. I'm sure we can get into. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I have to say, you know, I, I have always been so impressed by you and um, the work that you do at the New York Alliance. Your background, your passion, your dedication is clear. Um, and you know, the number of conversations I've had with you over the years about data management and, and the technology advancements and all the advocacy work that you've been doing, it's just incredibly amazing. And we're so, so lucky to have you at the head of, um, the New York Alliance and also, um, representative of us out here in the, in the provider field. Um, obviously you have done a tremendous amount of advocacy for direct support professionals, specifically for increased wages, partnerships with um, local colleges, getting educational and credentialing opportunities, the importance of having a real distinct uh, standard occupational classification for DSPs. Um, And certainly we're hearing, as I'm sure you (laughs) alluded to earlier, um, there could be a spending plan that's going on, and um, we had been advocating so much for increase and um, our COLA. We wanted an 8.5%, and I'm wondering, what are your first um, thoughts about this? What have you found out so far? Kind of hot off the press here. Let's just take one step back to think about what we were asking for going into this budget, which was 8.5% COLA Mm -hmm. and a direct support wage enhancement for anybody who provides direct support to individuals with disabilities, Mm -hmm. whether that's DSPs, frontline supervisors, even nurses. And we were looking to kind of do a a one and a two kind of one Mm -hmm. one step, two step type, type of thing here where we were both trying to keep up with the rate of inflation with Mm -hmm. things like the cost of living adjustment. At the same time, we were also trying to start to catch up from years of disinvestment Mm -hmm. in this sector that have allowed things like the wages that we're able to pay to DSPs and others, frontline supervisors go right up up the Mm -hmm. kind of the the chain of command. That has eroded Mm -hmm. over a long period of time. And where I find myself right now is a bit disappointed, frankly, where we're hearing about more of a 4% cost of living adjustment. Mm-hmm. On, this is Friday morning at 1010. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that will change as the weekend goes on right. or something like that. Um, but I guess I, I thought we had turned a page yeah. with the new governor, Governor Hochul, mm-hmm. uh, with last year's 5.4% cost of living adjustment. I felt like we had turned a page, and, and mm-hmm. I feel like we're now taking steps backward in our effort to kind of even just keep pace mm-hmm. with what we need to be able to maintain the status quo, which I think everyone recognizes and everyone admits is less than satisfactory right now. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a f- very frustrating point of, uh, I'm finding myself very frustrated at this time, having you know spent a, essentially a year on this advocacy mm. and we're seeing it come in it, far less than what we were asking. Yeah, for. it feels, I mean, I came in um, to this position in January of t- uh, 2011 and I feel like I bought, brought with me really bad luck <laughs> to, 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 to the field. It's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I feel that way sometimes, just, oh, dear. But I, I do think that it's important that we recognize um, how 
strong our advocacy efforts have been, meaning yes. we have pulled together in ways that, you know, mm-hmm. we had not seen previously. 10 years of working together collectively, trying to figure out what we can do, getting our PR out there, getting advocacy messages consistent across, you know, the associations. Really, really, I feel like it's become, um, it's sort of forced us to become much stronger. And so I, I do think there are some positives to this, but I do feel exactly like you do, that there has been such an erosion of, you know, of our field, whether it's financially or the way that people see, um, you know, nonprofits. I mean, that's always been kind of a challenge, but, you know, and, and how much it's, it's been hurtful to our staff and ultimately to the people we support. Yeah, one would have hoped after the pandemic that they would have seen the vital support that the direct support professionals give yeah. in the trenches that's, mm-hmm. you know, intimate and much needed care and and that that would have been recognized um, to your point. And, you know, I just have to pause for a moment and say how much I appreciate on your website the guidance that you provide for policy mm-hmm. and advocacy yes. because to Karen's point, yes creating that that strength in numbers and helping people understand why that's important and then how to do that advocacy, I do think made a big difference. I do think we were heard. We recently had a conversation with Senator Mannion about mm-hmm. the how vocal the the group has been. Yes. And um, you know, as you said, it's it's Friday, it's about ten o'clock. We'll see what happens over the weekend. <laughs> right, right. That's right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, and it's frustrating to find ourselves at a point where I think we we've seen those particularly and Karen, you said it's like we've seen that erosion take mm-hmm. place. Right. And mm-hmm. we've seen that particularly in our DSPs mm-hmm. where we're where these were once positions that were at least three times the minimum wage yes. in the in the era shortly after the the, the earnest deinstitutionalization began yes. in our state. Mm-hmm. Uh, those have eroded to what well, right now we're sixteen dollars and seven cents an hour mm-hmm. on a statewide average. Mm-hmm. And the you know and, and the minimum wage in uh, parts of upstate New York is essentially 14 and change. Mm-hmm. That puts us just slightly <laughs> right. above that minimum wage, and, and when and we and an in and an inability to compete with for-profit entities, Target, mm-hmm. Walmart, mm-hmm. go right down the line that are mm-hmm. going to pay 20, 22 bucks an mm-hmm. hour for work that, quite frankly, is a lot easier than the work of being a DSP. I, I don't think it's nearly as rewarding as being a DSP, but it's a lot easier, and and, and that's part of the challenge is that we are going to need to figure out how we regain some of that um, status, I guess is the way to put that. And I think the things you mentioned before, Karen, are you know, we're, we're, you know, the standard occupational classification at the federal level, getting this recognized as a profession mm-hmm. would be a huge step in the right direction. Right. It would allow us to collect the data, get that recognition at the national level. But we need to make those investments in building a pipeline, in building a credential, in providing you know technical assistance to organizations like yours to kind of mm-hmm. step up our collective game across the board mm-hmm. to be able to recruit and get but but we're going to have to do something really serious about the wage so mm-hmm. that when people are on those websites and they see job postings for your organization and all of the others in our membership and across the state that that we have a wage that that causes them to say yeah I'll click the apply button mm-hmm. and, and right now we we don't have that competitive edge and that's where I think we're going to need to continue to seriously work on that uh, at a state level because it's, it's the state's responsibility and it's the mm-hmm. state's funding that allows organizations like yours to be able to, to, to com- offer a, a, a competitive wage. And at this point, that's become less and less competitive. And I think, too, uh, and at least in my experience here, is, is um, I'd say prior to you know, 12 years ago or so, 
um, staff really didn't understand how um, their positions were funded by state government mm-hmm. until we had to start really advocating and explaining to them, we need your voice. We need you out there because in order for us to really in- enhance the wages for you, um, we have to really advocate to, to the governor. And um, I think people were mm-hmm. so much more educated and have been so much more educated about that. I think the wages are, are super critical, but also I think that the field has recognized there's other things here that we need to do to attract um, our you know people here. It's not just about the you know obviously the wages are important, but you know here's an educational opportunity for you. Here is you know credentialing opportunities that we're working with. You know we have apprenticeship with our local community college here, Mohawk Valley Community College, and you know I think all those things are super critical to really draw people here and also making sure people understand this is a relationship job. This is about you coming in. There's a reciprocity here. You're going to love it because the people that you work with will just so want to get to know you. Um, You're going to be able to provide um, support to them, their ups and downs, and they're going to do the same for you, you know, when you come in. So I think there's such a critical piece that we have to do to um, promote that. I was just going to say, Karen, I, I think you're absolutely right, because we do tend to be in a little bit of a microcosm here in this disabilities field. Mm-hmm. And having been relatively mm-hmm. new entrant to the disabilities field, we use a lot of acronyms. We talk about DSPs. Mm-hmm. And I have to remember kind of before yeah, entering right. this field, what is a DSP and what that's like to not know? And so while we are doing advocacy, you know, 135 organizations strong for, for the New York Alliance, as you said, Michael, external advocacy, saying this is what a DSP is. It's a direct support professional. And what does that mean? And why is it a professional? And why is it a relationship job? And and what do you get out of that besides just wages? It's almost as though we need to do kind of a a public advocacy campaign as well uh, and really talk about why this role is important, whether you have someone who's in your family or a loved one who's disabled or not. It's still vital. Yeah, that's right, and it and it's not and it translates not just to the the job of being a DSP, but the role that organizations like yours have in communities around the state. I mean, yes. When mm-hmm. we start to look at the economic impact yes. of yes. these services and these investments, it's a huge return on investment for mm-hmm. the state of New York. You push a couple of years ago, we did a study, you know, working with uh, the Rockefeller Institute at uh, SUNY Albany, a six point seven dollar in six point seven million dollar investment in this sector, in these services and supports, mm. generates a $14.3 billion economic return on that investment. Yes. Yes. We need to be able to, to speak more yes. clearly about the economic drivers and the importance of this work as an economic factor in mm-hmm. the state of New York That's um, right. much, much more significantly. And I think that that can help raise the profile of the job of being a DSP. Correct. I think that can help you know, raise that profile more significantly. Yeah, I think for years and years, right? I mean, there's always been a sort of a culture and a history of looking at nonprofits as, you know, oh, you know, well, we'll yeah. the, the charity, you know, they shouldn't be making yep. any more money than, you know, for profits. They shouldn't be, you know, having any kind of return on investment. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that we have to do, you're right, we have to do a lot of work on, on really educating the, the public on that. Yeah, because that's not a sustainable model. Yeah, no, you know? of course. That's, right. that's um, exactly right. Compliance-based culture, right? Sometimes <laughs> one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I you know, I, when I thought about um, over the last again twelve years, and 
seeing such a rise in compliance. And it, not that it's not important. It's just that there's so much that's thrown at us. Um, almost, you know, that reactivity of something happens and then it's suddenly another policy upon policy. We're very, very overregulated system, I think, at times. But then there's okay. also the importance of, you know, we have to manage person-centered planning, dignity of risk. We want to be able to honor people's choices. That sometimes becomes very challenging with our uh, ultra-compliance-based culture in the field. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, you know, what do you think caused that shift and that, that issue with, you know, the two sort of different camps? And um, what do you think we need to get um, to a more balanced approach? I, I think it actually has some roots in, in, in the institutions. I mm. think we, we borrowed a lot of, <clears throat> in the institutionalization, we, we brought with us a lot of that same kind of regimented approach, right, mm -hmm. um, that came into our communities and, and ultimately became part of our system, whether mm. it's IRAs or day programs or even supported employment, especially as we have increasingly made those Medicaid reimbursable services in the state of New York. Um, that's, and I think the compliance-based culture has kind of been put on steroids over the past decade or so. Mm. And Karen, mm -hmm. it's not your fault, but I think it's <laughs> it other, may be. Other, I just may be a bad penny. I think it's other, <laughs> I think it's other environmental <laughs> factors. And quite frankly, I think it was the, the previous administration. We need to remember the part of history here where the New York Times did a series of exposés on the OPWDD mm. system that was embarrassing, that was politically mm -hmm. damaging to the previous administration of, of Governor Andrew Cuomo. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that flavored, quite frankly, what he thought of the system and how he treated the system and mm. how that administration treated the system. And it became um, a kind of a, a toxic relationship, frankly. I mean, it, yeah. it became very much of a, and I think we still see OPWDD kind of in this uh, position where it, many people are afraid to, uh, you know, toe the, put their toe on a line to even step out and look and see whether there's still traffic coming, you know, mm. um, right. to see, to, 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 to look beyond the, just doing just not 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 making waves so to speak mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. like there's a there's a culture in there and it's it's really quite frankly ptsd as i look at mm. it yeah there's an entire culture that has started there and it has trickled down through the organization into the policies and regulations and rules that now you know that now essentially occupy the, the now the majority of the time that we have to be able to support people with disabilities. And I think this is one of the biggest opportunities of our system. We have a very clear DSP crisis that has been mm -hmm. building over a period of years and was put on steroids with the pandemic. Yes. At this point, I don't see a point in the future at all, even as far out as I can look at five or seven years, I don't see a point at which we're going to be significantly changing the dynamic of, of the the uh, the vacancies uh, in direct support professional jobs that we ca we face in this sector mm. because of some of those comp competition dynamics that we mm. were just talking about mm -hmm. minimum wage increases etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, that means we're going to need to figure out how to use the very important resources of direct support professionals and their time a lot more efficiently in the future mm. if we're going to be able to continue to serve the people that we're serving. Mm -hmm. That means we need to probably shift the system in such a way that that, that gets us away from that compliance-based culture. And I see the opportunity in that with shifting our focus from compliance compliance basis to an outcomes basis, mm. trying to align the activities 
so that we can pay, pay more fidelity to those concepts that you just mentioned, person-centeredness, dignity of risk, et cetera, et cetera, so that DSPs can spend the time supporting the people that they support, not completing the paperwork, not filling out the, not, not responding to the audit pro- protocols, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's where we're going to need to figure out how we change the culture of our system. Going yeah, I, I think there's been, I think it's such a fear-based culture. You know, I mean, I think totally. that the compliance and the policies and the reactivity is based on fear. I think then you have, you know, our workforce that's terrified that they're, you know, they're going to do something wrong and, you know, afraid of the compliance people, which, you you know, you absolutely don't want because you want, you know, people to be see that as a support team and a resource um, and a resource you know and i I think you're right i think it's going to take time for us to move past that but it's going to take um a a a very careful partnership with opwdd and our regulators to be able to do that you know fear can be so paralyzing and right in the name new york alliance we've been abbreviating mm, it but yes. for inclusion and innovation and everything yes, you just right. highlighted karen and michael <laughs> yes. to me is about being innovative it's it's working smarter not harder necessarily and it's you know putting it more person centered um, there's a, a huge component of the New York Alliance and, and what they do in terms of looking at technology and adding those smart technology aspects mm-hmm. to the provision, provision of care so that we can really maximize the efforts of the DSPs um, and also give you know the individuals that we're caring for that dignity of risk, that privilege of failure uh, that we all take for granted so often. You know, That's right. it's, um, it's a nice segue um, Heather into one of our questions that we had from Michael. I mean, I, I, again, I, you know, can't speak highly enough of, of the New York Alliance and you and the, um, the incredible, um, discussions we've had about data management, technology, um, how it continues to play such a critical and important role in the quality outcomes, um, for people in our field. And I'm wondering, um, do you see AI as you know, a next opportunity for innovation and inclusion? I do a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about using ChatGPT to complete mm-hmm. corrective action plans and <laughs> to fill in life plans. And right. like, right. you know, once you start to like, and, and that becomes an opportunity for efficiency, it also becomes an opportunity for um, routinization and, and mm-hmm. lack of person-centeredness. Mm-hmm. So I'm concerned about that. But I'm also concerned about what AI offers in terms of some of some of the I think unintended consequences, mm. if you will. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I've been having lots of conversations with our um, colleague uh, John Robinson over at uh, oh, yeah. Our Ability, yeah. and very concerned about the use of AI in the hiring process for mm. individuals with disabilities, in the mm. in the ableism that is oftentimes built into some of these things that will automatically disqualify a whole population of people oh, from that's a particular job because yes. of a dynamic there. So we need to really kind of we need to be leaning into it for its opportunities, but we need to be cautious about what um, unintended consequences or, I mean, if there are nefarious consequences or, you know, things going on too, but I probably more likely unintended consequences of, wait, that's that's excluding people. So I, I, I'm, I think it's something we need to lean into an awful lot more is where I'm going. I, I do too, and I think also um, is, you know, what you do so um, – well is getting people together to start having these discussions now instead of you know because it's gonna it's advancing quickly and you look in the healthcare field um you know hospitals they're moving they're getting a lot of you know great 
um, discussions going. There's a lot happening, even just on social media in that sector. But I think we have to start getting people together to start really yeah. talking about this and saying, hey, yeah. here's some advantages, but here's things that we have to sort of learn more about, educate our community um, much, much more on, on the pros and cons. Yeah, that ha- absolutely has to be a values-based discussion, too, mm-hmm. because rather than having mm-hmm. that technology thrust upon us, we have to say, here's what we value, here's why, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in DSP, why our field is important to individuals, and how do we maintain those values while adding this in as a tool? Um, you know, because to your point, Karen, you look at hospitals and how they've adopted computers so much, yeah, and now you right. go to get a checkup and Oftentimes, the doctor or nurse's back is to you because mm-hmm. they're working on the computer, taking their mm-hmm. notes instead of engaging mm-hmm. and having that human component. So looking for efficiency, but at the cost of that human touch is, mm. is a failing right. endeavor, I think. Right, right. There's talk yeah, about, right. you know, really using AI much more in an individual um, healthcare, um, you know, sort of structure. So your home, you have your own sort of AI physician that's helping you you know, on a regular basis. So how is that going to play out, you know, in, in, in the healthcare field? You know, I mean, these are all sort of discussions right now, but, you know, I think it's going to ramp up quickly. And I think, again, it's why we got to get um, started on those discussions. So just one last question for you before we move sure. Heather into the lightning round. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, new initiatives that you have going on at the New York Alliance. One of the things that I, I think most excites me is um, – how much you work on leadership development. Um, I recently saw um, that you have executive leadership development for your association Mm -hmm. members, and and I know there's a lot going on in the New York Alliance besides that. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the executive leadership development, why you feel that's important, and whatever huge number of issues (laughs) and things you're focusing on at the New, New York Alliance. We, we do have a lot of things in the hopper, I will say that. On our executive develop, executive leadership development series, yeah, we, we definitely see this as the opportunity to invest in the leaders of the future. And mm-hmm. here's a wonderful opportunity to do so, um, leaning on so much of that expertise that exists in our sector um, from a variety of people who've been around a long time enough to know mm-hmm. what we were before some of that compliance-based mm-hmm. culture really kind of set, set in and what real true fidelity to some of these con- concepts of uh, the, the fundamental concepts of our system look like. So our leadership series will, uh, it, it's going to be a, a like a, essentially like a six-month kind of engagement. Oh, great. <clears throat> um, some both in-person and web-based learning opportunities, um, networking opportunities. I think right now we have 28 people signed up for the first round. So great. Um, that's awesome. That'll be a, a pretty robust class. But we'll talk <clears throat> about values-based leadership. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about how you push in social and emotional intelligence into your organization and, and, and embrace those concepts. Um, what does effective advocacy look like? Strategic planning for an organization. Mm. Being a, a risk-resilient organization, and how do you build some of that resilience up? Wow. Um, really investing in some of those concepts around person-centeredness and building it into the culture of the organization. Mm. Um, I, we also have uh, uh, things around measuring quality and impact uh, and, and, and ethics within the organizational structure. Uh, and then we will also have some components in here related to <clears throat> uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, mm-hmm. really trying to push into the into our uh, our collective understanding. What does implicit bias look like? Mm-hmm. What does that explore? How do we explore and pushing those concepts into our workplace? What do microaggressions and microassaults look like? Yes. And how do yes. we protect against those? 
succession planning, strategic planning, <laughs> yeah. conflict management and resolution. Yeah. Those are all components of the of the leadership. That's, what a robust curriculum. Know, Holy it's moly. Be amazing. That's going to be amazing. It'll, it'll be fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So yeah. uh, a couple other quick things to, to mention here. Um, we are just launching actually a new um, consulting relationship with Sachs Policy Group. Oh, and particularly nice. exciting about that is that we will be working with um, Courtney Burke of a name oh, that yes. many people in the field would, yes. would remember, a former commissioner of OPWDD, a former deputy secretary for health and human services in the governor's office, and most previously in, in the in the healthcare sector representing the hospitals. Wonderful. And so we're going to be engaging with, with Courtney and trying to help bring some of that conversation we were talking before about um, how do we move from a compliance-based structure to a more of an outcomes-based structure? Okay. Um, we're going to be really looking to try to have Courtney help us define and outline a, a vision for the future of the service delivery system. How do we use that DSP time more wisely, create more of that uh, that blue space, as as our friend Hans Meissner, formerly of the uh, ARC of, of Rensselaer County, used to, uh, said in his book, create more of that opportunity for investing in the, the, the fundamentals, investing in the pillars of our system, person-centeredness, mm. yes. dignity of risk, yeah. honoring choice, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so we're very excited about that. Um, we are launching this coming next year, actually. Um, we'll be building into and using the, I guess, using the collective weight, if you will, of the association and its 135 members to bring all of the members of the association into membership with Anchor at the federal level, oh, really stepping up our advocacy at a federal level, and, and pushing in a more complete picture of our ability for us to, our, our ability to, to paint more of that picture more completely about how the issues at the state level also tie into the issues at the federal level and how we need to be active on both of those fronts if we're going to be really making some headways on, on all, of those, uh, all of those things we've talked about here. I see data. We're trying to reinvigorate some of our data uh, initiatives. The assistive technology components that were just introduced in the OPWDD waiver amendment mm -hmm. are very exciting. Mm -hmm. I think there's wonderful opportunity to create a community of practice around how do we best use that technology to support independence mm -hmm. and create and augment the supports that DSPs can provide. I, I can go on, but you're getting the idea. There's a lot well, in the hopper. Yeah, and that's that's. I'm I'm very um, excited about the enabling technology. So that'll have to be a separate podcast yeah, because really. I I love the concept of <laughs> augmenting uh, right. the abilities of the DSPs as well uh, yeah. via that. This has um, just been such a fantastic conversation, and of course, the time always goes uh, too fast for us. Yeah. <laughs> but um, if people want to um, learn more about your organization and um, what initiatives you have going on, could you tell us the the website? Yeah, it's nyalliance.org. So you can find us just by Googling very easily. Um, we're Twitter and, and Instagram and all that stuff as well. But that's where you'll find probably the most um, robust collection of the things that the association is involved with. Many of those projects I was mentioning before have their own separate websites. I'm thinking about the Housing Resource Center. Mm -hmm. um, there's an entire website that's linked off of our website, our main website, to serve as a resource to provide organizations. And now we're moving into being uh, a direct support for individuals and their families. It's it's probably the best place to go and, and find more, including how to contact all the the members of this amazing team at the New York Alliance and the who who kind of bring that work uh, into the field. Great, so I'd encourage people to go there. Well, thank you um, so much for you know this great conversation and all that you're doing there and doing for the people we support, their families, the providers. It's it's just amazing what you guys do and 
we'll definitely be having you back on again because there's so much more to talk about. But at this point, I think we're winding down and we're, we're going to, we're going to, uh, hand it over to Heather. So, so the, um, to Karen's point where you're going to have to lock you into coming back on because I have a lot more questions, <laughs> not the least of which is how your bachelor's in philosophy informs <laughs> how you approach leadership. But that's, you know, like I said, a whole other conversation. I was going to say, that's going to require some more time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I had a minor in philosophy, so like, I, I get n nerdy about a lot of different <laughs> things. Um, but, but I would love to hear, and maybe this is a redundant question after the question about philosophy, but who has most inspired you in your career and why? I can think of two people off the top of my head right away. Um, one is uh, Mike Hogan, formerly former commissioner of OMH. Uh, Karen and I both, I think, had the pleasure of working with him yeah. in a previous capacity. Oh, um, neat. Just yes. a really the, the right kind of leadership style. I'm trying to inspire and bring bring out the best in people and allowing them to flourish as best as they can mm -hmm. um, within you know sometimes challenging environments. The other person who's in more of our space of IDD services actually is a self-advocate, a friend and colleague and a bit of a mentor now, I think, to a degree. Uh, B.J. Stasio out of oh, uh, Western New York yes. is, is a really amazing advocate, um, and I continue to learn an awful lot about how to be how to, how to be a better advocate just by, from watching him do it naturally from his own um, lived experience perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I thought about him recently and thought he would – I'd like to reach out to him to see if he would be on our podcast. He would be a wonderful guest. I bet he'd love it. Oh, okay. that would be that would be really cool. So, you know, you you talk a little bit about leadership and uh, specifically like with Mike Hogan and what it is to be a good leader. What leadership quality is most important to you? Integrity. Mm. It's about the the honesty, the the approach that you bring to that. There's an awful lot of fake in our world, mm. um, collectively, you know, writ large, and you. It becomes an increasingly um, um, hidden skill in some ways, or a hidden hidden attribute. I think we need to lean more into that these days, um, even even when that's the uncomfortable part. Um, mm. The admitting of the yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm not the best. I'm not. I'm not. I don't have my my all of my leadership perfectly honed. I'm continuing to work on those things. It's all part of integrity and um, and owning those things. And um, yeah, that, that's that would be my answer is integrity. That, that's a beautiful answer. Um, and finally, uh, this is always interesting to hear from people, your favorite place to travel and why? I have two. Um, they are the Adirondacks of mm -hmm. the state of New York and also Lake Ontario, where my family has a, a small cottage over on Lake Ontario near Watertown. So oh. lots of time, opportunity to um, c contemplate the challenges that our, <laughs> yeah. our system and our services have and and. Uh, I find those places to be renewing nice. and um, a bit of a step away from the, the hustle and bustle of the everyday work that usually kind of trips us up in some ways. It's an opportunity to reconnect with nature and, and uh, reconnect with, you know, reconnect with the earth yeah. and uh, thinking about us in a bigger context than just some of the things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the Adirondacks is probably the top answer that we, we hear from <laughs> from our guests. Cer certainly upstate focused. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, as I said, relatively new to the field still and still have so much to learn. And I think that's um, these opportunities to talk to someone like yourself who've, who spent a lifetime really working for our field is for me invigorating and inspiring and i just thank you for the time you gave us today the pleasure has been all mine it's a lot of fun and i would uh, relish the opportunity to continue the conversation whenever you want excellent thank you so much
You're very welcome. Take care. Disclaimer, the views, ideas, and opinions expressed in this podcast are only those of the individuals involved and do not reflect the official policy or position of the ARC Oneida Lewis chapter, the ARC New York, or any other agency, organization, employer, or company.